This morning comes to us from the book of Lamentations, chapter 2, verses 13 through 22. And I'm going to remind you, as I did last week, this is not a bright, cheery, sunny reading, but it is a book titled Lamentations, so you're prepared for it. Listen now for God's word to you. And I was uh, asked last week to let you know the page number in your pew Bibles if you wanted to follow along. 765 is where you'll find this one. 765. Listen listen now for God's word to you. What can I say for you? To what can I compare you, O daughter Jerusalem? To what can I liken you that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter Zion? For vast as the sea is your ruin, who can heal you? Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes, but you have seen oracles for you that are false and misleading. All who pass along the way clap their hands at you. They hiss and wag their heads at the daughter Jerusalem. Is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of all the earth? All your enemies open their mouths against you. They hiss, they gnash their teeth. They cry, we have devoured her. Ah, this is the day we long for. At last we have seen it. The Lord has done what he proposed. He has carried out his threat as he ordained long ago. He has demolished without pity. He has made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the might of your foes. Cry aloud to the Lord, O wall of daughter Zion. Let tears stream down like a torrent day and night. Give yourself no rest. Your eyes no respite. Arise, cry out in the night at the beginning of the watches. Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to him. The lives of your children who faint for hunger at the head of every street. Look, O Lord, and consider to whom you have done this. Should women eat their offspring, the children that they have borne? Should priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? The young and the old are lying on the ground in the streets. My young women and my young men have fallen by the sword in the day of your anger. You have killed them, slaughtering without mercy. You invited my enemies from all around me as if for a day of festival. And on the day of the anger of the Lord, no one escaped or survived. Those whom I bore and reared, my enemy has destroyed. The word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. So as the parent of young children, I watch a lot of children's movies, and I mean a lot of children's movies, and uh, there are some that are better than others. There are some that my children want to watch that I beg them desperately to please pick something else, Uh, but a good place to go normally is Disney+, Plus. that Disney has all sorts of good movies, um, some that are not just for kids, but are meaningful to adults as well. And one of those movies is the 2015 Pixar film, Inside Out. Uh, Inside Out follows the 11-year-old Riley, uh, and really it's not so much about her as it's about her personified emotions, who sit at the control panel of her life. And you can see what these emotions look like here. That You see joy right there in the center, and joy is responsible for keeping those happy memories, helping Riley to feel gladness. Then we have Sadness on the, on the right-hand side there. Um, sadness and joy are really the two main characters throughout the movie. 
And then we have fear kind of in between them, who is responsible for helping Riley to know when something is dangerous to her. Then to Joy's left, we have Disgust, who lets Riley know that broccoli is disgusting. And she also helps her to navigate social cues, uh, like not doing cringy things in front of her classmates. And then, finally, we have anger on the left-hand side there in red. And anger looks kind of exactly how we would imagine him to look. Sandy, if you want to pull up the next picture. This is exactly how we would imagine the personified emotion of anger to look, right? Uh, he's, he yells, he throws things, his head bursts into flames when he's really set off, um, and he's voiced by the notoriously angry and grouchy comedian Louis Black. Y'all know Louis Black? Yeah. So all of these emotions are there to help Riley navigate her way through her life. They help her make sense of her experiences, especially as she goes through this big transition in the movie. That as the movie begins, joy is really the dominant emotion because she lives in Minnesota with her parents. She has lots of friends. She's a star hockey player. But then her dad gets transferred to San Francisco And she has to navigate all of those changes, that awkward experience of being the new kid at school. California's not known for its hockey climate. She has to navigate all of this, and all of these emotions help her to process her experiences. And there are, I think, a lot of reasons to love that movie. Uh, It's heartwarming, but it also illustrates the fact that our emotions are really the ways that we make sense of the world, the ways that we process our experiences. There's just five emotions in this movie. There's a total of 27 human emotions. And there is a sequel coming out to Inside Out, uh, I think, later on this year. I think where uh, Riley goes through adolescence and she meets anxiety for the first time, right? Uh, I'm really looking forward to when that one comes out. Look forward to that in a sermon sometime after it comes out. Uh, But it illustrates the fact that our emotions help us to process the world that we live in. I think the truth is we understand most of the emotions that are present in that movie. We, we certainly understand joy and the ways that it helps us to make sense of those happy, glad experiences, the good things in our lives. We understand sadness as it helps us to process grief and loss. We understand disgust to help us to navigate social cues or fear to keep us safe. But when it comes to anger, I think anger is one we don't quite understand Anger, I think, suffers from some really bad PR. We don't quite understand what to do with with anger. But the truth is, is that all of us have been angry at some point in our lives, and anger has been with us all along the way. From that very first moment we were born, we leave those warm confines we were in for nine months, and we enter the world, and it's cold, and we start screaming, right? Right? Or we're hungry, or our diaper's wet, and we cry. We, anger has always been with us. And we all get angry. Even into adulthood, we still get angry, don't we? I imagine somewhere near the top of everybody's list is somebody who's driving slow in front of you that makes you angry. You're already running late, and now you got this pokey driver in front of you, and they sneak through the light as it turns yellow to red, and then you're stopped there, and you got to add a whole two minutes to your ride, and you blame them for being late, not the fact that you left the house too late, right? It's their fault. It makes you angry. Or how about, have you ever been angry when you're hungry? Or the phrase, hangry? 
You're so hungry that you're angry. I can't tell you how many arguments Heather and I have gotten into in the last couple of years where then we sat down and we ate dinner and we realized we're not angry at each other. Our marriage is okay. We were just hungry. In fact, we got to the point now that when we start grousing at each other, getting angry at the other person between the hours of 4 and 6 p.m., we start saying to each other, are we really angry at the other person or are we just hungry? Or uh, one of my favorite ones I read this week was somebody who was in a public restroom and they got water on their shirt from leaning too close to the bathroom counter. That makes you angry, but it also kind of triggers that disgust response, right? Because that's super gross, isn't it? If I had been a fly on the wall in any one of your homes at some point in the last four years, I probably would have heard some anger directed at Zoom, right? It says my microphone's on, but why can't anybody hear me? Why can't anybody see me? Why isn't technology working the way that I want it to work? And I imagine there were a lot of people in this room who were angry a few weeks ago during the NFC Championship game when Dan Campbell forgot that a field goal also nets you points in a close football game. We've all been angry. We've all experienced anger. But I think the reason why we struggle with anger is that we tend to associate it with acts of violence and acts of aggression. And certainly this sometimes is the result of anger. Like I read about a a couple who had been married for a long time and the the husband had a, a temper that he lost quite a bit and it happened that one night and they were Sitting down for dinner, he apologized to his wife, and his wife said, oh, it's okay. Whenever, whenever you lose your temper, I just go and I clean the toilet. And the husband was confused and says, does that help? She goes, yeah, because I use your toothbrush. <laughs> Sometimes anger results in episodes of road rage, right? Someone getting angry at somebody on 696 and them getting run off the road, I... When when nations get angry with each other, sometimes it results in bombs and missiles flying. I've even seen people who, after their football team loses, pull their TV off the the wall and smash it on the floor. Not Lions fans. Those pesky Packers fans were the ones doing it, right? Sometimes anger does result in these aggressive, angry outbursts. And to be sure, if this is the result of anger, it's an indication that maybe our anger is disordered and not functioning the way that God designed it to function. Maybe an indication that you need to seek some anger management classes. If you're running somebody off the road or cleaning the the toilet with your spouse's toothbrush or breaking your television set after Dan Campbell just won't kick the field goal, those are indications that we might have uh, disordered anger. But anger does not always result in anger and in violence. I think the the thing to remember is that anger is not an action, it's an emotion. It's a way for us to process the world as as the experiences that we have. It's a a God-given way for us to experience the things that we we see, that we go through in our lives. And the, the American Psychological Association estimates that anger only results in Uh, these violent, aggressive episodes, only about 10% of the time. And what they say is that it's entirely possible for there to be violence and aggression and for anger to not be the driving emotion behind it. That as an emotion, there are lots of ways that we can express anger, just as there are lots of ways for us to express our other emotions. 
Think about when you're joyful, when something good comes to your life, you might smile or laugh or dance, or when something causes disgust, when there's a plate of steamed broccoli in front of you, you might, that, maybe that's just me, you make a face, right? There are different ways, and, and so too are there different ways to express anger. How many people cry when they're angry? I know quite a few people who cry when they're angry or who go and listen to music or who go and exercise or some people who just completely shut down altogether. There are all of these different ways for us to be angry. Because I think what anger is at its core is it's sort of like an immune response. It's signaling to our bodies, to our communities, to our society that perhaps there is something that is wrong. There is some injustice here. There's some hurt or pain that needs to be attended to. That there are lots of reasons for us to get angry that exceed the sort of trivialities of life, that exceed the Alliance football game or, or someone driving slow in front of you or Zoom not working just right. That there are big things that happen in our world that rightly and justifiably cause anger. And we see that present here in this story that we read from this section of the book of Lamentations that I just read for us a few moments ago. Uh, Just a reminder about the context of Lamentations. We entered into this book last week. Lamentations is really the poetry of people who are left behind, the ones that nobody loves. The least of these are sisters and brothers. Because remember, the people who pen Lamentations, they are Uh, the ones who are left behind in the former kingdom of Judah as some of the important notable citizens are carried off into exile in Babylon, and while others who have the means and the ability escape as refugees into Egypt. So all of these left-behind folks are left to kind of pick up the pieces of their former lives, to sort of wonder where God is in all of this. And so last week we heard them as they took on the persona of daughter Zion, or which is really just the personification of the city of Jerusalem. The, the people who are left behind take on this whole kind of collective consciousness. And they name their pain. They name what they've been through, and they beg somebody to notice, to pay attention to what they've been through, to not bypass them. And daughter Zion is not the only one who speaks in the book of Lamentations. We also have another person who speaks who's simply known as the narrator. And the narrator is sort of watching kind of not from a great distance, but sort of an outside observer to what's happening to daughter Zion. He's watching and he's processing it. And we we hear him name what daughter Zion has been through in all of its sort of graphic detail. How vast is the sea of Zion's ruin, he says, What can anybody say to you? What can anybody do to make any of this better? He says that the prophets gave you promises of the the enduring faithfulness of how long your kingdom would last, and yet those promises have returned void. He he names the, the hardships of siege warfare. He says, all the nations laugh and mock you. And what's worse is that the narrator implicates God in all of this. He says, God is the one who has caused your suffering. That's a really big elephant in the room, and that's something we'll talk more about next week. But there's this sense that as the narrator names all of this, you can sense that his anger is rising. He's getting 
royally ticked off as he watches what happens to daughter Zion. The same way that you and I might get upset watching what happens on the world news. Things that are happening maybe far from us that we're observing, but it still makes us angry. And what he says to daughter Zion, what his advice to her is, is to make a scene, cause a commotion, get angry. He says, let the tears flow from your eyes and don't stop crying until God sees you. He says, let everybody know, let everybody see the the things that you endured during siege warfare. Let them see you're young and you're old dying in the streets. Let them see you're hungry and you're desperate. Make a scene, get angry so that everybody else can see it. There are good, justifiable reasons for daughter Zion to be angry. She shouldn't have had to endure the siege warfare that she did. She should not have been left behind in the ruins of a former life, left to to wonder where God was or if anybody cares. She should not have had to endure any of that. And so when the narrator says to her to get angry, I think it's good advice. But one of the things I don't think the narrator takes into account is that it's a risky thing to ask daughter Zion to get angry. Because just as there are other, just as there are multiple ways for us to express anger, there are also rules, social norms around who is allowed to get angry, whose anger is validated and heard and understood. And often it's the anger of the powerful who, that seeks to be understood, but it's the anger of people on the margins like daughter Zion that is invalidated and even vilified at times. Think about the fact that in our own society, it's often the anger of men that is sought to be understood. Some of us might have grown up in a house where dad's mood controlled everything, right? That when dad got angry, we had to be especially attentive to it, and we made excuses. Well, dad works hard. He's been working all week, and he's exhausted, and he's tired. Maybe so. But then when it comes to the anger of women... It's often depicted as if women are being emotional or hysterical, right? This devaluing, this dehumanizing of the anger of women. Or think about in our own society too, the anger of white folks is elevated and sought to be understood above the anger of people of color. Think about any of the last, the mass shootings that have happened in the last 20 years that have been overwhelmingly perpetrated by a white, uh, white man And the media will twist itself into knots, trying to explain why this anger became so so disordered. That they'll dig into psychology and into dating life and into home life, seeking to try and understand why. But then compare that with when an act of racialized violence happens, and the anger of black folks who are the victims of such violence is often vilified or dehumanized or ignored, that they're the victim of the violence, but it's not always heard and sought to be understood, that the media will start asking questions about criminal records, as if to say, this is why such and such person deserve this. The truth is, I think we fear the anger of people of color. It's why we elevate stories of quick forgiveness, because it makes us feel better that we see it when daughter Zion is implored to get angry. And the risk is, is her anger going to be heard? Or is it going to be devalued, dehumanized, not sought to be understood? 
But if we can make space for daughter Zion's anger as she still appears in our world, it actually can be that thing to lead, that leads towards healing. Because remember, anger is not an action, it's an emotion. It's an immune response that signals that there's something wrong, that there's something that needs to be attended to. The philosopher Lisa Tespin calls anger a burdened virtue. And by that she means it's a, it's a burden for the person who's angry to carry, and yet it signals to the rest of us that there is what needs to be attended to. I think that anger is one of those misunderstood emotions that actually can be very productive for us. You know, I don't know how you pray, but may, might I suggest to you this morning that anger might be a good part of your own prayer life? Because here we, we see the narrator imploring, begging daughter Zion to express her anger towards God. And I think we as Christians have often resisted that idea of being angry at God that will heap the praises and the accolades and the titles upon God, but we're often afraid to get angry with God. There's a, a pastor I follow on, on TikTok. She's an Episcopal priest, and she does this thing she calls rage prayer. And so she enters into the scene, onto the camera, and she's got her clerical collar on. She sits down. She makes the sign of the cross, looks real pious and righteous, and then she just lets the anger and the frustration rip. I think this is actually what, she, what she's doing is asking God to attend to what's hurting within her, what's broken, what needs an immune response from God. It's a way of, of being honest with God. And I think this is why the lament tradition, which we don't talk about a whole lot, is so important because it allows us to have that open, honest earnest relationship with God that sometimes we need to pray to God and talk to God sans filter and just say whatever we are feeling to name the pain. And in doing so, we're actually inviting God into it. Might I also suggest that the uh, anger of folks who are on the margins of our world, the anger of the daughter Zions as they still appear in the world around us, it might be one of the most productive forces that we have. Because what they're doing for us is they are naming some injustice, they're naming some pain, they're naming some oppression that needs to be attended to. That they are actually inviting us into the immune response to respond, to, to make a better world. That perhaps anger is not always a bad thing. That anger, when it's rightly ordered, can be incredibly spiritual can be an incredibly important way to engage with God, to engage with the world around us. Think about the fact of, why are you such a fierce advocate for everyone's right to exist, to be loved by God? It might be because in those moments where you see someone being treated as less than, as being devalued, causes anger to stir within you. And maybe it's just the Holy Spirit calling you to greater love. Why are you such a fierce advocate for people to be fed and cared for and for a just world for everybody? Maybe it's because there's some anger there telling you that when people aren't fed or cared for or the world is not just for everybody, that there's something wrong. It's signaling something to you. Perhaps anger really is just that gift of the Holy Spirit. When it is rightly ordered, it calls attention to where we are to be. It calls to mind to, to bring to, to vision those things that are unseen, to hear those things that are unheard, to notice those things that are unnoticed. 
Yes, it's a risky thing for daughter Zion to get angry, but perhaps her anger, if we can hear it, is what leads us into the world as it could and should be. The world that is only as it could and should be when daughter Zion is heard and where the world is working for her. Thanks be to God. Amen.